This is episode number 739 with Dr. Ingmar Schuster, co-founder and CEO of Exozyme. Today's episode is brought to you by Gurobi, the decision intelligence leader. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's an exceptional episode with Dr. Ingmar Schuster, a visionary who's pioneering the use of AI to transform biology and chemistry research. Ingmar is CEO and co-founder of Exozyme, a German biotech startup that aims to make chemical design as easy as using an app, thereby shortening the way to solve the world's most pressing problems such as cancer and climate change. Previously, he worked as a research scientist and senior applied scientist at Zalando, the gigantic European e-retailer. He completed his PhD in computer science at Leipzig University and postdocs at the University Paris-Dauphin and the Freie Universität Berlin, throughout which he focused on using Bayesian and Monte Carlo approaches to model natural language and time series. Today's episode is on the technical side, so it may appeal primarily to hands-on practitioners, such as data scientists and machine learning engineers. In this episode, Engmar details what kernel methods are and how he uses them at Exozyme to dramatically speed the design of synthetic biological catalysts and antibodies for pharmaceutical firms and chemical producers. This has applications including fixing carbon dioxide more effectively than plants and allowing our own immune system to detect and destroy cancer. He also talks about when shallow machine learning approaches are more valuable than deep learning approaches, why the benefits of AI research far outweigh the risks, and what it takes to become a deep tech entrepreneur like him. All right, you ready for this fascinating episode? Let's go. Ingmar, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's great to be with you here live in person at the Morantix AI campus in Berlin. When I asked, um, so Rasmus Rote, one of the co-founders of the center, uh, I've known him for something like 15 years and um, I had never been to Berlin before. About a month ago, I said, I'm thinking about making a trip to Berlin. If I did that, could I stop by the AI campus? And he said, absolutely. You can work here as much as you like. And then um, Arantia Gomez, on, uh, who leads marketing, yes. um, she then suggested to me some great people as guests for the show to interview while I'm here in Berlin. And Ingmar, we're now delighted to have you here. Thank you, John, for having me. Um, so tell us about what you do. You're the CEO and co-founder of Exozyme, which is an AI protein design tool. And so I don't know how much people are aware that proteins are something you can design, that humans now have that power. So yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, that's true. Um, proteins you don't only use to bulk up and eat. Um, <laughs> But actually, the reason why we need to eat proteins, they don't only make muscle fiber, but they make, they are responsible for basically all the important chemistry that's going on in our bodies and basically every other organism in this world. Um, the most basic chemical task that they fulfill is catalyzing reactions in your body. 
Like, for example, there's a biocatalyst, which is basically a protein that acts as a chemical catalyst that takes CO2 out of your bloodstream, transports it into your lung, releases it as in gas, gaseous form so that you can breathe out. And every chemical reaction going on in your body, you know, it has to work at 35, 36 degrees Celsius which is not what most catalysts do that we use in the chemical industry. Um, so these biocatalysts, they can do with very small amounts of energy. So this is one protein. And the other type of protein that's used a lot, especially in pharma, um, are antibodies, which most people will know from the news about COVID um, because our bodies naturally build antibodies against diseases, which basically are an adapter um, so that the immune system can recognize and kill um, diseases. Yeah, very good example. And so there's, I mean, I don't know if you roughly know like the number of different kinds of proteins. I guess if you consider all the different <laughs> kinds of antibodies, you're talking about billions of yeah, yeah. different configurations of proteins in each of our bodies. Yeah, exactly. So the nice thing about proteins from a machine learning standpoint is that they have a very simple way of, uh, for describing them. Um, namely, it's just a chain um, of 20 letters. Each letter stands for an amino acid and you just string them up and that's kind of it. But because it's 20 letters and we all know combinatorics, if you go to lengths like 300, 400, you already have more possibilities than atoms in the universe. Mm. This is the standard metaphor that everybody uses <laughs> exactly. for combinatorics. <laughs> yes. um, so, um, so there's a lot of combinations. That this means you can do a lot of very different things by seemingly tiny changes, like sometimes just exchanging one letter, one amino acid, um, can have extreme effects on, say, the speed of catalysis for a biocatalyst. Right, right, right. So, um, yeah, small changes in the amino acid structure could mean either that the catalyst that is required for doing some kind of important work in our body, yeah. um, it, if there's some genetic mutation, uh, sometimes that genetic mutation will not impact the functionality of the, the protein, but that's the rare case because most of the time you change one of these genetic instructions that encodes that sequence of amino acids that you just described, and that will typically make some kind of effect, and uh, usually that would be a bad effect because <laughs> of all of the possibilities out there, um, it's, it's, it's probably going to negatively impact um, the capability of that protein. But I guess then every once in a while, and this is what allows evolution to happen, yeah. by chance it ends up being better, and maybe that catalyst works a little bit better, or we're able to detect an infection a little bit more uh, efficiently, yeah. and then that individual is more likely to survive, and that mutation goes forward into future generations. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what, what you just uh, hinted upon, evolution, like in machine learning, people have been around for long enough, they've heard of this old method of um, evolutionary algorithms. This is exactly the idea of having a code that you change randomly and then maybe you get something that's better for the purpose you're interested in. This is exactly what's happening in organisms. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, these al- evolutionary algorithms are very cool. Um, but uh, I guess with the getting back to the AI protein design yeah. idea is that allowing evolution to figure out uh, maybe better combinations is, you know, that's just by random. <laughs> and obviously we can't be then selectively breeding people to mm. have that protein be more likely in the population or something. Um, and so does AI protein design, when you're doing that at Exozyme, are you typically trying to recreate proteins that already exist, or are you sometimes designing new proteins that maybe have better functionality? It's, it's mostly the latter, because in, like, as you say, uh, there's no chance ever um, to design what's going on in human bodies in the sense of changing human bodies. I mean, there's gene therapy in the making, na na na, but that's not the may not the majority of things that people are interested in when they design proteins. The majority of things that people are interested in is they take out the biocatalysts from the host organism, and the host organism could be just bacteria or yeast, sometimes plants, sometimes animals, yes. But then um, you're interested in the, ca- in the chemical reaction this catalyst catalyzes um, for making certain chemicals, for example, in an industrial setting. So um, BASF, the biggest chemical company, but also many pharma companies, they use biocatalysts as production routes. And why are they interested Number, in this? Number one, um, very often, they get much better performance using biocatalysts. They don't get as much waste product, for example. That's the first thing. The second thing is um, they can run these reactions at much more sustainable, um, in much more sustainable environments, like lower temperature, um, nice solvents like water. They don't need aggressive solvents or anything. So this is just um, from an economical standpoint, very, very nice to be able to produce stuff with biocatalysts. Um, this is one thing. The other thing is antibodies. Um, the antibodies that we naturally built as um, humans or mammals are of a, of a kind that works for many, many diseases, but it does not work, for example, for, can- for many cancers, because cancers are really just our own tissue that's misbehaving. So it's very hard to distinguish a cancerous part of your body from a healthy part of your body. And this is where normal antibodies that we naturally design with our biology, they don't work. And people from pharma companies come in and say, well, we have to do something more advanced. We have to design artificial antibodies in order to combat these types of cancers. Okay, okay, so I'm starting to piece together here that it wasn't a coincidence or an accident that the kinds of the two types of protein categories that you kicked off your explanation with were biocatalysts and antibodies. So it sounds like you're starting to get towards that these are two areas that Exozyme specializes in. And so you have two different sets of clients, I guess. Yeah. Uh, One of which is interested in these kinds of industrial applications like BASF. Um, and then the other set is this medical application, cancer detection. Actually, yes. So biocatalysts are interesting to chemical companies um, and industrial biotech companies. 
um, the medical application, let's say pharma is interested in both antibodies and biocatalysts because uh -huh. they use biocatalysts in order to make even their normal drugs in a more sustainable and profitable fashion. Nice, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, yeah, maybe you can go into, uh, I don't know, okay? I don't know to what extent, if there's, uh, without obviously going into proprietary secrets that you can't disclose on air, yeah. are there some concrete examples you can give in each of those sectors? Yes, so um, we've up to now mostly worked on biocatalysts. So one of our recent success cases was where we engineered a biocatalyst that plants use um, to um, fixate CO2. So basically take out the carbon atom of CO2 and use it to build up biomass. That's what plants do all day long. They take out CO2 from the air uh, and use the carbon atom to build out sugars and everything else basically that they make using the energy they get from the sun. And um, our collaborators designed a new biocatalyst that can do this. Their goal basically is to enhance plants to take up more CO2 and store more CO2 um, than they usually do. And they were trying standard methods um, for design, for, for optimizing this biocatalyst. And they made a lot of um, protein variants one by the first method they used was what in machine learning we call student descent. So somebody reads papers and thinks very deeply about what can I do, and then they try out stuff. That's what they did first. Then they came along with the brute force method, which is basically an evolutionary algorithm implemented in the wet lab, meaning you just create random changes to the protein sequence, um, random mutations, that's where it's coming from, and then screen for which variant is improving. And this way they generated over 15,000 different variants in the lab, and they got to a certain point, and that was kind of it. And uh, we started talking to them, and they were very cautious and said, yeah, yeah, okay, so they say, hey, I think everybody's talking about it, so yes, okay, we are willing to give it a try. We gave them 10 more suggestions after the 15K that they made and measured previously, and of these 10 suggestions, two improved the performance. One cut the energy demand in half, and the other tripled the catalytic speed. So um, yeah, this is uh, our last success case, big success case. Garobi Optimization recently joined us to discuss how you can drive decision-making, giving you the confidence to harness provably optimal decisions. Trusted by 80% of the world's leading enterprises, Garobi's cutting-edge optimization solver, lightweight APIs, and flexible deployment simplify the data-to-decision journey. Garobi offers a wealth of resources for data scientists. Webinars like a recent one on using Garobi in Databricks, they provide hands-on training, notebook examples, and an extensive online course. Visit garobi.com SDS for these resources and exclusive access to a competition illustrating optimization's value with prizes for top performers. That's G-U-R-O-B-I.com slash SDS. Yeah, that's wild. Um, so can you dig into a bit the, the AI, the machine learning that you're using to yes. make those recommendations? I mean, 
That's that's wild. <laughs> and they must have been, were they blown away? Uh, they were uh, very surprised. They were quite blown away. Didn't imagine why the hell uh, this, uh, this worked because like the PhD student who worked with us, he said, yeah, but it's very far from the active site. The active site is kind of the, the uh, place where the action happens in the biocatalyst. So the, the, the mutation your AI suggested is very far from the active site. Do you have any idea why it suggested you there? And I was like, no, no idea. <laughs> it's a black box <laughs> even to me. Yeah. And so they were trying to get the 3D structure of this protein um, in order to understand it. Um, yeah, and maybe this is also an interesting part because many, many people know AlphaFold. Um, people in biocatalysis use AlphaFold because it gives them the 3D structure that a protein sequence translates to, mm -hmm. called folding. Um, and from the 3D structure, they are trying to gain insight. We take a shortcut. We don't go through 3D structure through folding, we directly go from the sequence to the performance that you're looking to improve, basically with a regression model. And um, the methodology we used, uh, I, I won't go into detail, but really the first method that we used is, of all things, uh, kernel methods, mm -hmm. which many people still might have, might connect to support vector machines. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't change for quite a long time because there was no need to go to another method. Of course, we also um, use deep learning as well nowadays, but we're really big believers in metrics. So whatever performs best, that's what we use. Yeah, and we're going to talk in more detail later on. We have a whole topic area around how deep learning is not always the answer and shallow methods can be more useful. Yeah. Um, so it's not surprising for me to hear you say that at this time. And yeah, we'll dig into that more later. For now, um, you said that you used a kernel method. And yeah, for me, when I hear kernel method, I think only of support vector machines. Mm -hmm. And so, but the way that you phrased it there, it sounds like it's something else. Yes, so support vector machines are really old fashioned now in kernel methods. Oh. Um, still performing very well, mm -hmm. but old fashioned in the sense of They've been around for a long, long, long time. And the way people thought about kernels back then has gotten several updates. And uh, it's by far not as fast as deep learning research. I guess mainly because um, people in kernel methods, they insist on theory. And um, I think it's a very nice property of many shallow methods, I guess, that you can do theory, but um, the fact that you can tinker so much and so easily in deep learning is probably what has gotten deep learning this big following. Yeah, deep learning famously has <laughs> very little explanation for many of even the core capabilities of these models. It's just, it works. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, okay, well, that's really cool. And so you, maybe it is something proprietary, maybe it's just something you can't disclose, but are you able to give us, if it's a kernel method that's not an SBM, are you able to tell us kind of generally what this method is called? Or? Uh, it's not published, actually. Okay, okay, um, okay, okay. So yeah. uh, that's why yes. I, I can't give a name because yes, yes, I yes. never had to find one for okay. any paper. Okay. Um, but it's, uh, it's basically 
well, unsurprisingly, it's a way to embed a sequence into an embedding space. <laughs> um, this is very standard, right? So in, um, in deep learning, you would, for example, embed into a fixed dimensional space and then do a regression problem from that. Or maybe you would uh, use the um, regression variant of transformers with an artificial token in the beginning, whatever. Um, here, yes. Uh, so it's an embedding into an, an infinite dimensional space, in theory at least. Hmm. And then you do a regression problem from there, um, which works with very few data points. That's the big advantage of this. Okay, so yeah, and something that we also will dig into more later, although maybe now is just starting to sound like the right time, is that you come from a background in natural language processing where we are concerned with taking sequences of characters, like the word cat, the word bat, um, the word mat. These mm. are, you know, there's commonality between the characters in these, but the initial character greatly changes the meaning of the word. And so in natural language processing, the standard today, all the way up to the most sophisticated large language models, like at the time of recording, GPT-4 is probably the leader, uh, and then Anthropic's Claude. So these huge large language models are concerned with taking these sequences like cat, bat, mat, and part of their processing involves converting them into an embedding space of meaning, yeah. and as you say, it would be in natural language processing. It would be there would be a fixed number of dimensions, and this mm -hmm. is a, a hyperparameter that we decide on. The more dimensions you have, theoretically, the more granularity you could have in the way that meaning smears around. But there's also more compute, so that's yeah. your trade-off. Um, now, uh, so you come from this natural language processing background, and so it seems like there is this analogy to what you're doing now, is that right? There, there is an analogy, yes. Um, although there also is an analogy to time series, uh, which is what I did before doing this company. I think um, this is kind of the beauty of machine learning that uh, when data looks very similar, you can treat it in a very similar fashion. And um, yes, many companies that have started out in um, AI for protein design, they use basically transformer models trained on protein sequences. So it's more or less take the same model, just train it on different type of sequence, and that's kind of it. So yes, it's super related, but in the end it's all just statistics, like fitting massive models onto a sequential type of data, both natural language and proteins are just sequences of characters to the computer so it doesn't really matter um, and for and if you take an even uh, more abstract view then it's just sequences of bytes really that you that you learn to fit like time series for example so this was uh, time series models is what I um, initially looked at when developing this uh, kernel embedding of sequences and it's very simple to just massage uh, your algorithm to take characters instead of numbers. Very cool. Um, so I think we'll get into the time series stuff a little bit more later on. 
for now, something that I think would be interesting if you could, if you have a way of describing this, I've been hosting this show for almost three years now. Mm. And I don't think we've gone, in fact, I'm certain that we haven't gone into any level of detail on kernel methods. Mm-hmm. So this, yeah, maybe there's a way that you could explain to our audience what this means in a general sense. I mean, or you could be using an, an example from your work, but uh, like, yeah, how, yeah how, how does it work? Yeah, so one of the modern ways of looking at kernel methods is to look at them as just another type of vector space. So while, so for example, um, in natural language processing, before transformers came around, before you modeled everything, like hit everything on the head with the same hammer, which is what you do now, um, people looked at vector space models of meaning of language. So there was one vector for representing the meaning of dog, another vector for representing the meaning of cat, and uh, there was um, a matrix for adjectives, for example. So there was a matrix when you said green dog, then you had the matrix for green and the vector for dog and kind of um, taking the product between the two gave you the new meaning for green dog. And the, with vectors, you can add them. Um, this can add them. You can compute angles between them cosine similarity, this is what people probably have heard of. You can do exactly these things, like matrices, called then operators, um, vectors, which in this case are just uh, infinite dimensional vectors, in, in theory at least. And you can add up these infinite dimensional vectors to make up more complex objects in this vector space. And really, it, it takes some getting used to uh, and as said, uh, people in uh, kernel methods, they really like to use mathematical language and uh, sometimes they only act as uh, formal and theoretical, whereas in reality it's a very heuristic method. Mm. Um, it takes some getting used to, but in the end it's just, you know, adding together vectors, uh, computing angles, uh, and so on and so forth. The very modern type of these methods allows you to um, represent probability distributions inside the vector space. So there's a whole host of papers uh, that have been published in recent years. Um, some of them uh, of myself and my collaborators about how you can represent the distribution of a data set as an, a kernel vector space object and how you can translate between, um, I, for, for example, how you can take the distribution of a time series at one time point and transport it to the next time point. And then you can do all of these classical, seemingly the old type of things like um, component analysis, analysis, ICA, PCA, on these operators and we've applied this to a high-def video and you get out very interesting very meaningful components many people will know um, variational autoencoders 
which are another way of trying to get meaningful components out of your data, basically unsupervised methods that you get uh, in a very simple fashion out of these methods. Like a couple other recent episodes, I've recorded today's episode live at the Morantix AI campus in Berlin. The inspiring campus is Europe's largest AI co-working hub as it houses over a thousand entrepreneurs, researchers, investors, and policymakers. If you'd like to be associated with the exciting, inspiring Morantix AI campus yourself, I've put the email address of their chief of staff, Lawrence Lunkes, in this episode's show notes. Lawrence can fill you in on how Morantix incubates and invests in early stage AI ventures. If you are a founder or soon to be founder in the AI space, they'd love to hear from you. Very cool. Um, yeah, it's a space that I've been consumed mostly by deep learning um, in recent years, uh, getting close to a decade now of like immersion in that. And um, yeah, there's so much more here in kernel methods whether the support vector machines or not, uh, for me to dig into. And um, yeah, fascinating. Maybe I'll have to have an episode dedicated to it at some point. One particular thing about it that I'm struggling to wrap my head around. Mm. We've said a couple of times that the number of dimensions is infinite in theory, at least. In theory, yes. So, you know, going back to the example of the kind of natural language processing, you know, where I would use maybe a deep learning network to convert, um, or, or a shallow neural network, uh, you know, so with um, a relatively now simple and uh, well-known method like word to vec mm -hmm. um, using a shallow neural network to convert a long uh, corpus of, you know, natural language, so taking a whole bunch of books or all of the language on the internet, mm -hmm. you can use that to map into an embedding space uh, the meaning of any of the words in that corpus that occur at least a handful of times. Yeah. The details of that, <laughs> it's, it's probably not great for a podcast format to try to explain that, um, but I do have uh, content elsewhere which I can uh, uh, direct, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes um, for, for explanations of kind of how word to vec works. Um, but when we do that, we specify, as I, can, when, as I already said maybe five minutes ago in this episode, when we do that, we specify as a hyperparameter how many dimensions we want the words to be mapped into in that embedding space. Yep. And so I could say, okay, well, um, my downstream task, my downstream natural language task, it isn't going to be very complicated. Maybe all we're doing is predicting whether a document has positive sentiment or negative sentiment. And so maybe I'll try using just 32 dimensions or 64 dimensions mm -hmm. because I, you know, I'll prioritize this being uh, cheap, compute, mm. uh, cheap cost for me to run this in production and train. Um, but then for a more complex task, like a generative AI task, maybe then I want several hundred dimensions, maybe getting close to a thousand dimensions kind of area. Um, so in those cases, I mean, we have a very concrete, <laughs> for every one of our words, you could think of this as a row. Yeah. And... Uh, for every one of the words, then we we have as many columns as there are dimensions. Mm -hmm. And so then each word has this very specific place in this high-dimensional space dictated by that that vector, that row yeah. that the word has um, of length, number of dimensions. <laughs> and it becomes then easy. You're talking about cosine similarity. We can then take the cosine similarity between the row dog and the row cat 
and we'll see, okay, those are probably in a somewhat similar region. They'll yeah. have a pretty high cosine similarity score relative to say cat and mat, yeah. which are very different meaning even though there's similarity in the characters. And so, I don't know, so when I, so when I think about embedding spaces, it is this very concrete, <laughs> very specific, I know exactly how many rows I'm gonna have, that's as many uh, words as I have in my vocabulary. I know exactly how many columns I'm gonna have, that's exactly the number of dimensions that I've specified I want in my embedding space. So I can't wrap my head around how you could have an infinite number of dimensions. I, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Uh, so just the language uh, blows people's mind and they are like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, so when I say that in theory, you have infinite dimensions, in practice, it always means, not always, but for, for most uh, kernel algorithms, it means you have as many dimensions as you have data points. So you always know, okay, uh, my data set is off-size, I don't know, I have a million samples, mm. my vector space is going to have size one million. Okay. I have a million and one samples, so I have a vector space of, in reality, a million and one mm. dimensionality. Mm. And um, I think, um, so, so there's several things to say about that. Um, so when you say typically we fix the dimensionality of the vector space, that's true for many, many methods. So if you have an encoder-decoder architecture and you want to fix the, the encoding size, you can do that. If you look at the basic transformer architecture of um, self-attention and trying to predict the next word, what you really have is a mechanism that looks at all the different words that come before that, in principle, no matter how many come before that. Of course, we have practical limitations because computers can only handle so and so much data before the compute explodes. Um, but in principle, every word coming before the word that you're trying to predict helps you predict this word. And what you're really learning is how to, which words to look at prefer preferentially, attention, basically, mm -hmm. right? So it's the, exactly the same mechanism. And unsurprisingly, the vanilla transformer um, has a, uh, a quadratic computation cost and kernel methods do as well. Right? There you go, so. okay, cool. So kernel methods allow you to attend to the most important words ahead of whatever our word of interest. If you would build a um, predict the next word, ty word type of algorithm right. with them, then yes, that's how they would work. Wow, cool. Yeah, that is completely news to me, but also it's starting to make sense to me. Yeah. So yeah, so I really appreciate your explanation. So thank you for indulging me on kind of this deep dive into kernel methods and uh, I definitely have a better understanding, so hopefully some of the audience has come away with a bit of a better understanding as well. So we got onto all of this because we were talking about how XDesign provides an AI protein design tool. Yeah. So now we have some idea of how it works. We have some idea of the application areas, namely biocatalysts for chemical companies, and then biocatalysts and antibodies for pharmaceutical companies. Um, how does a human 
provide value <laughs> in the process of, of doing this work? So is it a, like, to what extent is this an automated process or mm -hmm. to what extent does a human still get involved and, uh, and, and get creative in allowing some of these, these applications, these methodologies to bear fruit? So I think uh, what a human always will be needed for is setting the goal. So what do we want to achieve? Um, and for quite some time, we will set up the measurement um, environment. So as Francis Arnold said, who um, developed uh, directed evolution, which is this brute force lab only method uh, hammer that you can apply to protein, uh, protein optimization, um, you get what you screen for. So if you measure with low measurement noise and you measure the thing that you're actually trying to optimize, then you will do a much better job in optimizing your protein. And um, if you use directed evolution, then you will get out quite some value of good measurement practices. If you use AI methods to make more sense of your measurement data, then you will make even better use. And even Francis Arnold, uh, who um, got the Nobel Prize for this method uh, five years ago, she's working on AI methods for protein engineering these days. Cool, that is a yeah. nice historical data point. Yeah. Um, awesome, so humans need to decide the objective, and that's it. That is what will always be there. Nowadays, mm, what we often do is uh, we have the machine generate suggestions, and then a human comes aboard and says, yeah, but I know that X, Y, Z. And sometimes they also look at the fold, right? Look at the protein fold generated by AlphaFold or ESM fold. There's a bunch of different packages doing this now. And uh, try to gain more insight from that and maybe some biochemical intuition. Um, if you have perfect measurement data, this is not necessary. Um, perfect measurement data and say 20 data points then this is not necessary, but often you don't have perfect measurement data. Um, so, but, but the vision overall, I think, is what... Uh, of role? Sorry? The vision of... The, the vision overall. Oh, overall. Sorry. Yes. As like, <laughs> yeah, I got you, continue. Yeah. Um, the vision overall is um, Alan Aspuru-Guzik, who is a professor in Toronto, he's calling this the self-driving lab vision, mm -hmm. like self-driving mm -hmm. cars, mm -hmm. only for a lab. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the self-driving lab is much easier um, than self-driving car just because you have a controlled environment. There's no pedestrian walking into your lab robot at any point in time that the robot has to avoid. But you can, you can have a very controlled lab and if you can automate, automate the synthesis of, say, proteins in our case, and the measurement, and then hook this up to machine learning, then basically after setting up the measurement so that you have low measurement noise, you can just press a button and then wait and have your protein optimized for you, really. Very cool. Yeah, self-driving labs, that'll be exciting.
and it does seem like we are moving in that direction. I think there are probably some uh, limited numbers of cases where it is it is happening. Yes, it's been a very recent um, achievement that several groups around the world, both in industry and academia, have achieved an automated um, build, measure, learn cycle. Very cool. Yeah, something definitely to watch out for. And I've had my eye on this topic for a few months now, and I'm thinking of yeah, eventually having an episode that is dedicated also to this self-driving lab idea. Um, so we dug up in our research that there was a link between using AI for chemistry and climate change. Yes, in, in many respects, um, because we have, don't have time for the old type of chemistry. Chemistry is one of the most energy-intensive sectors um, that we have. And, for example, developing catalysts that use less energy is one of the major uh -huh. levers that we have. Oh, right. That's number one. Number two, many projects about uh, CO2 fixation use biocatalysts. So one of them uh, we talked about earlier, um, where our collaborator used our AI to make to teach plants to take up more CO2, basically, right? So there's many, many directions where you can use AI technology to help you make more sustainable and more profitable, really, um, chemical routes and processes. That is uh, the dream situation, policy-wise, <laughs> when you can be making, when you don't even really need to be making a policy argument because the economic argument makes it for the corporation, then you think, okay, um, here's another way, uh, this AI-driven way that I could be uh, developing and applying my biocatalyst to my chemical yeah. reactions and save money, and so yeah. why not go down that route? Yeah, exactly. And luckily, molecules don't have privacy rights, so that's... Uh, <laughs> One of the reasons why we thought this is a good application of AI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that is, it's something that we don't want to, there's no point in us spending too much time on in this episode, but um, it is a bit of an interesting thing where in Europe um, there is um, a more advanced regulatory climate relative to <laughs> the US. That's a euphemism, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Europe likes to regulate things that uh, barely exist in Europe because they are not very good in um, helping the innovation along. It's not true. Of course, AI exists in Europe. Absolutely. But uh, let's say if European politicians were as good in pushing new technology as they are in regulating it, then I would be very happy. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good point. And yeah, obviously we are here at the Morantix AI campus in Berlin and there's a huge amount of AI innovation happening here. But yeah, yeah perhaps, um, as you say, that's a really nice way of putting it where if the same amount of effort went into fostering mm. AI as they went into regulating it, even just trying to be like 50-50 on yeah, time spent, absolutely. I guess. Because yeah. um, the regulatory stuff, it, it absolutely matters. But yeah, you hear a lot, at least from overseas, the news that I get, I get 
you know, it's, it's got to be 99% of the AI-related news I get from Europe is regulatory-related. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they, I think they take their GDPR regulations, so basically European privacy law, as a big success because it was copied um, across the world, it seems. Mm -hmm. um, but they really also managed to put a lot of roadblocks um, in companies' ways. I knew a lot of people that were um, that were completely insecure about what GBT, GDPR means when it was introduced. And I think now everybody calmed down and stuff, but um, just they, they, can be a, they can do a better job of communication. Although I think uh, like the, the bigger issue for Europe really is that this promise of the unified market kind of has fallen flat. Mm. Um, it's way too fragmented, I think. Um, that's probably one of the reasons why the US um, has been able to grow big tech companies because they have a big unified market, really. As we often discuss on air with guests, deep learning is the specific technique behind nearly all of the latest AI and machine learning capabilities. If you've been eager to learn exactly how deep learning works, my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, is the perfect place to start. Physical copies of Deep Learning Illustrated are available in seven languages, but you can also access it digitally via the O'Reilly Learning Platform. Within O'Reilly, you'll find not only my book, but also more than 18 hours of corresponding video tutorials if video's your preferred mode of learning. If you don't already have access to O'Reilly via your employer or school, you can use our code SDSPOD23 to get a free 30-day trial. That's SDSPOD23. We've got a link in the show notes. Yeah, and the culture is relatively homogeneous yes. as well in the US. Exactly. Uh, yes, there are other languages spoken, and yes, uh, a night out or a dining experience in New Orleans is going to be quite a bit different from New York, but nevertheless, there are still all kinds of commonalities. Like, uh, you know, you're you're still ordering in the same language. You're still you're getting a lot of the same foods, uh, and you know, things like fast food chains are able to operate across the U.S. and Canada, yeah. um, offering probably you could theoretically offer exactly the same thing on the menu everywhere in the country. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's some kind of McDonald's, you know, franchises are doing some, maybe some kind of minor menu changes, but they wouldn't need to. Mm -hmm. You could, you have this relative homogeneity, whereas, yeah, in Europe, you obviously, you have so many different cultures and it's what makes it such a fantastic place to visit yeah. because you're an hour or half hour flight away from a vastly different culture, um, but that makes it harder um, to create a product that is going to suit all of these different cultures' needs. In part that, yes. I mean, I, I do enjoy the cultural richness. I guess a less fragmented market would naturally lead to more homogeneity also in the way people live, yes. Mm. Um, but for some products, it's not, you know, um, for some products, it, it is very easy to have a common market um, 
especially digital product products, especially B2B type of business, that would be very easy. But it's even hard for us to hire somebody from France and get them the health insurance like after a year of time. Oh, really? Yeah, it's yeah, uh, see, that's unbelievable. A, I assumed that that stuff was relatively straightforward. So That's uh, what you would assume, yes. <laughs> I, I would have before this as well. Wow, yeah, that's wild. Yeah, I kind of assumed it was along with that free movement of people, it was, you know, truly would be able to, you'd be able to hire any talent in the EU. And you are, you are. Right, you right. can hire any talent, only then you have uh, folders of this size of actual physical paper that you have to fill out. I mean, for, of course. For people not watching YouTube, uh, there were several feet <laughs> uh, of height of paper. Yes. Correct. So this, of course, this is not the truth. Uh, you can um, do some things digitally, but there's a lot of administrative hassle. Let's say that. Cool. Well, moving on from the regulatory stuff uh, and kind of more into the specific expertise that you can provide us um, on Exazyme-related innovation, there might be listeners out there wondering if these kinds of technologies like AI protein design, um, if there are some, some risks associated with these kinds of technologies as well. So maybe, maybe a good kind of question to get into would be with these kinds of technologies that are allowing us to uh, emulate or improve upon biological proteins, mm -hmm. what are the risks associated with that? And then what are the benefits? Yeah, the risk is basically the risk of any tool, um, like, I don't know, you can use a screwdriver both to build up your cupboard, um, to help fix your car, and you can use it to stab somebody. Right. Right? Um, Everyone's favorite stabbing tool, the screwdriver. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and just, just like any tool, really, AI is dual use. Um, and yes, of course, you can use it to, I don't know, make a poison, let's say, if you want to. But nobody is regulating screwdrivers or knives for that matter, um, because knives are better, are better stabbing tools. They are a better stabbing tool. But they are also better in the kitchen. So yeah. um, nobody's like uh, forbidding knives, mm -hmm. which is because you can use them to cook delicious meals in much shorter time than if you were using a stick. <laughs> and the same is true for AI for protein design or chemical design overall. You can use older methods to try and come up with catalysts that break down CO2. And you can spend enormous amounts of time on this and enormous, spend enormous amounts of money on this and you will at some point uh, come to the same solutions, only it takes you a hundred times or a thousand times as long and as much money. Um, so I would not say that we should um, ditch this opportunity just because you can also do bad things with it. There's risk anywhere in life, really. Um, I remember being a postdoc in Paris and there was these really um, appalling 
attacks in the Bataclan bar. Um, and then Bataclan, like, Bataclan was, yeah. was this bar where some people, I think from Belgium, they came yeah. and they made a bloodbath. In an Eagles of Death Metal concert. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And uh, some of my colleagues at the university, and they actually lived across the street, and they were really shocked by this. Everybody was shocked by this. And there was all of this military in Paris, uh, walking around the city with their machine guns. Um, and I stood in front of an arts museum, and I saw this long queue of people standing there, and yes, they were standing there in order to get through security to get into the museum. But anybody, any terrorist with the same machine gun could have just gone and shot everybody in the queue. Mm. So you do have risk and you should think about the risk. But in this case, um, there's so many opportunities attached to it that uh, you have to follow this path. It is actually a wild vulnerability that I had never thought of, which is that, so, I mean, this is the same in airports too. Of course. Like when you, yeah. once you're inside through yeah. security, of course, that's a very safe place to be. Yeah. But you're sitting ducks when it's a jam-packed queue there. Of course. And, and obviously there's no pre-security line screening. Of course. Jeez. Yes. Never, I mean, never going to... Stand in an airplane line feeling safe again? It doesn't matter. You walk around <laughs> the city. If somebody wants to hurt you, yeah. they can. Yeah. You're not sitting ducks like that airplane scenario. Jeez. <laughs> that's, the, that's the most dangerous part of the flight. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the point is uh, that, yeah, there's risks associated with AI. It's dual use, just like almost, I'm sure, any tool out there. Um, but the benefits outweigh the risks, and I think that's especially true here when you have technology that can be playing a part in dramatically transforming. And the examples that you provided in this episode so far today, we're talking about dramatically transforming industries, yeah. whether it's chemical synthesis or it's pharmaceutical. But there is also applications in this area relatedly, you know, maybe in the coming decades. Mm -hmm. you, know, you talked earlier in this episode about um, gene therapies mm -hmm. and gene editing is also something that is, uh, thanks to CRISPR, has become yeah. much easier in recent years to do that very targetly, very cost-effectively. And so, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on other kinds of maybe like thinking ahead decades, the kinds of technology that you're working on here, an AI protein design tool. Do you have any like big picture ideas of huge societal benefits that could be unlocked by technologies like this? Apart from what we talked about already, like CO2 recycling is one of the big current trends. Um, antibodies right. um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. designing them with AI is one of the big trends really in, in the big pharmaceutical companies uh, as well. I think chemistry in general, um, like design of molecules other than proteins also has many, many interesting applications. I think one of my favorites these days is passive daytime cooling, which is not very practical at the moment. The idea of it, uh, maybe just to give a one sentence introduction, is you have a material, say a paint or something, you paint your house with it, 
and it's a passive AC. So you don't need any energy and it cools down whatever it covers because it's radiating uh, sunlight in a way such that you cool down below ambient temperature. And this, I think, is really one key for combating climate change because as the world gets hotter, if everybody installs energy-hungry ACs, um, we are in a vicious cycle. Right. And this is one way to break it. Um, and uh, I think in, in many respects, um, making new materials that are light and stable at the same time, this is uh, an important part. And I think overall the chemical pharmaceutical industry it's really kind of stuck in the 19th century not really but it's been much slower to move and ai gives us the opportunity to really digitize this industry from the ground up because doing anything in the physical world is always expensive so if you can do as much as possible in the computer with as little energy demand, even for the computer as possible, uh, it will save you huge amounts of um, time and money. Yeah, famously in recent decades, the cost of developing a pharmaceutical drug is just ballooned astronomically. Yes. And then that means that downstream, the cost to the patient or the insurance company and ultimately the patient or their employer in, is somehow playing, paying for that. So, um, and then it also, uh, it, it, it makes the development, this huge cost, it makes, it creates a risk aversion culture yeah. yes. in pharmaceuticals. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, this is a very exciting application area, uh, you know, that I've, I've thought about before for sure. The ability, like you're saying, to digitize, to be able to do in silico the kinds of estimations. I mean, you already gave us an amazing example at the outset of this episode where um, a client of yours had done laboriously, expensively, 15,000 tests of different, well, te however many tests of 15,000 different candidate proteins. Yeah, exactly. um, and then you were able to blow their minds with suggesting 10, yeah. um, and in some cases of those 10, uh, would seem like unusual suggestions suggested by the AI, but they end up, uh, in many cases like you described, having a huge impact. So this in silico, um, yeah, the cost savings. I mean, it's we, we talk about in, in startups of if you can do something, if you can show some 10x kind of multiple, mm -hmm. whether that's a... 10x efficiency increase. Um, uh, you know, it, it, with this, you're talking about many orders of magnitude more than that. Yes, uh, two to three. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, wild. Um, very cool. All right. So we promised our listeners much earlier in the conversation we put a pin in this idea of deep versus shallow ways of mm. achieving these kinds of enormous uh, multiples. So let's dig into that. Um, this is something that you mentioned to me a week ago. We had a pre-call to kind of yeah. talk about what kinds of topics we could be covering. And when you found out how technical our audience was here at Super Data Science, you thought that a great topic to cover, and this isn't something that I've had on air before, mm -hmm. is this idea that we've alluded to earlier that 
in many cases, shallow approaches to machine learning. So I guess maybe you can give us like a definition there. I guess I'm assuming in my head this means anything that isn't a deep neural network. So it could be a shallow neural network or I guess any other machine learning approach. Yeah, yeah. yeah so um, I'm using the word shallow just, as you say, to contrast with deep learning. And um, I think what would count as shallow is everything with exactly one nonlinearity layer. And that's kind of it. And maybe a matrix before, so a linear layer before and linear layer after. Um, kernel methods that we have talked about is one such example. It's basically, so in many cases at least, you can also make them deep, but uh, let's not dig into that. <laughs> um, so one linear layer before, non-linearity, one linear layer after, and that's kind of it. Um, why do I think this is interesting? Because... Um, Number one, in extremely many cases, you can get exactly the same performance out of these um, architectures. Um, and number two, you can often compute them in a much more efficient way. Um, and even if you choose to, you can go sequential um, in, in a much more efficient way than you could in uh, deep networks. So I think uh, th there's been few papers out in recent years that have looked at classical methods uh, like, for example, um, random forests um, and made the connection between random forests and uh, deep networks. There's actually in kernel methods, there's quite a few papers that show, okay, if you take multilayer perceptrons or several other architectures, ResNets, um, uh, confnets and take a certain limit for example like the classical limit is you make the layer width go towards infinity what you get out is a kernel method really with one particular kernel um, and on the other hand people that have tried to look at practically can you get the same performance out of these types of shallow methods that you get out of neural networks deep learning methods, when you just scale the number of parameters and the number of data that you throw at it. And there's many very interesting results, for example, by Mikhail Belkin at uh, UC San Diego, who did exactly that and then showed, yeah, basically same number of parameters, same amount of data, kernel method uh, performs at least as well or sometimes better than um, neural network architectures. Um, why this is interesting? Because we can, number one, we can understand these systems also theoretically. I think in general, why I find this interesting is just um, from this contrarian viewpoint of you, you understand more about your standard method, about deep learning by looking at these other methods and um, how you make them perform well. And some... Um, something that uh, I sometimes uh, discussed with my leads in, in my previous company was uh, they, they were like, yeah, but why don't you try this and that method as well? And I'm like, yeah, but to make this method perform well, I have to invest uh, thinking time. Um, if you invest the same thinking time in what I currently have, 
and think about okay, what uh, what might help this algorithm? Um, you oftentimes get better results um, just because you have more insight into the problem that you put in into this. Of course, one nice thing about this deep learning revolution we talked about it before. The tinkering is really nice and easy oftentimes. And we are converging slowly but surely towards architectures that you can just use in a plug-and-play fashion. Transformers libraries by hugging phase, you just take this and hit everything with it and you're kind of done. This also exists in the shallow world. Some Kaglers uh, say XGBoost is all you need. <laughs> um, because it performs just phenomenally mm -hmm. oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so XGBoost, for people who aren't aware of it, I think I have do done an episode dedicated to this, um, but it's a it's like a, the random force that you described earlier, um, where at each stage you're specifically correcting for the error made at the previous yeah. stage in the tree. Yeah. Um, and yeah, super, super powerful. It does end up winning a lot of Kaggle competitions. Absolutely. That's for sure. Yeah. Nice. Well, that was a fantastic uh, foray into shallow um, approaches. Um, and yeah, I, I, do, I, I do agree with a lot of the sentiment that you're describing. It was particularly interesting there to hear you say how when you focus further on some particular approach that you started with. Yeah. So um, it could be uh, a kernel method, it could be random forest, it could be deep learning. By sticking with that and tinkering further, yeah, yeah you probably are more likely, it's probably a better use of your time than just randomly trying out switching to the completely other approach where the hyperparameter is going to be completely different. And maybe you don't have as much expertise yourself in figuring out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is uh, people do it in deep learning also all the time, right? They think about, okay, how is my data structured? How do I adapt my neural network to, to be able to capture that? Yep, and so in your time, in your master's in linguistics, or your PhD focused on natural language processing, um, were you mostly using these kinds of shallow approaches? I was actually building Bayesian networks. So uh, back at the time, I did a lot of Bayesian work. This was very old work at the time, uh, Bayesian non-parametrics. Uh, I think it kind of developed. It was on work in parallel to the neural network stuff. Um, so yeah, that's what I used in my PhD. I was working on modeling meaning of natural language using this um, probabilistic language, basically, which is Bayesian networks. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that was mostly what I did. Cool, yeah, and some people are doing kind of Bayesian deep learning stuff. You don't come yes. across that very often. It's usually shallow, yes, not true. more than one nonlinearity. And so that was probably true in your... PhD research. Uh, yeah, um, this is true. This was true in my PhD research. Yes, I think the reason why people don't tend to use um, Bayesian neural networks as much is probably because the really interesting part is getting probability distributions. This is the interesting part about the Bayesian approach, and that you can get even without uh, computing integrals, as you do in Bayesian uh, inference. Very cool. 
Um, so digging into this a little bit more, <laughs> into uh, your PhD research, um, it sounds like it's important for you for linguistic theories to be falsifiable and quantifiable, which might be quite a bit different from the kinds of insights we get from language models today, like the big transformer-based LLM approaches. Well, they are quantifiable in the sense of probabilities, right? You have probability for the next word being, I don't know, dog versus the next word being kraken or whatever. Um, so they are very much quantifiable. And I think really this um, subsumes falsifiable because if you have probability zero, which almost never happens, um, then it's then something is false. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating, and uh, we could probably go on for ages about um, your academic work, but to kind of tie it into our uh, most of the conversation we've been having here around Exozyme, how has going from your academic background, you did a couple of postdocs yeah. after your PhD, yeah. how was the transition to industry, why did you choose to do it, and has the academic background, it sounds like it's going to be a yes, based on how involved you are with like developing new unnamed unpublished kernel methods, for example. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's a multi-part question. It's how was, you know, why make the decision to go from academia to becoming an entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. um, how was the transition and how does the academic background help you in your entrepreneurial career? What's the most important part about doing a PhD is really your way of working very deeply, of being able to focus um, in demanding situations and coping with uh, pressure, really. Uh, I did my PhD um, after having my son, which is especially like, oh, you know, really? son is playing and then uh, on the other hand, you're trying to think deeply, which really uh, taught me to um, shut out, be able to shut out the environment in in the right times. Of course, there's a subtle balance that you have to strike with actually being there for your kid. Um, but yes, this this kind of deep work, being able to cope with pressure, being very self-sufficient, self like self-motivated. This is something that I think uh, academic work teaches you a lot. And of course, you meet many, many super smart people, um, sometimes not very practical people, um, that too. But it's definitely um, internal motivation, intrinsic motivation is, I think, one of the most important driving forces for doing anything important. Most people don't do, don't accomplish big things by hunting for money. Um, so on that note, for people out there who would maybe like to, as opposed to just being focused on the money itself, but would like to make as big an impact they can, maybe particularly in this kind of biological space, um, what advice do you have for listeners who would like to be an entrepreneur blending AI and biology? Just get into it, I would say, <laughs> no matter where you come from. Actually, the funny thing is I, 
I did not take any biology or chemistry classes in my high school. In my uh, postdoc here in Berlin, this was a very biochemistry, chemistry heavy um, group of machine learning researchers. And I, I was keeping a strong, a, a wide um, distance from that, strangely enough. So I never touched anything, although I was exposed to chemistry applications all the time. Um, and I just learned this stuff for the startup from my co-founder, who is a biochemist. And uh, yeah, just plunge into it. You see that with uh, with many people who, um, who also had quite an impact on machine learning. I mean, I think the Transformer paper was basically an internship project, right? Uh, some of these people didn't do their PhD, and they are doing really fine. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this is this is not a necessity, right? Uh, what is a necessity is being driven and motivated and uh, keeping at it. Nice, yeah. So if people want to be successful applying machine learning AI to some specific domain, um, the key is to just get started. Is yeah. your first point, and the second thing, it sounds like based on your you. You didn't really say this out loud, but your co-founder does have the biological background. So there could be situations where if you're a listener and you have specific experience, specific expertise in machine learning and AI, but there's some application area where you feel like you could make some big societal impact, then you could potentially be partnering, yeah. co-founding a company, uh, perhaps, with somebody who has that expertise. Um, Absolutely, yes. And people love working with machine learning people. <laughs> yeah, I imagine, yeah, you, you hold probably more of the cards today okay. uh, as the MLAI expert, as the data science expert. Awesome, so Ingmar, this has been a fascinating episode. I've learned a ton. Before I let you go, do you have a book recommendation for us? Can I have two? Of course. Hmm. Um, I think one very interesting book I've read is, uh, there's a strange subtitle. The, the title is Noise, and the subtitle is A Flaw in Human Judgment. It's um, Among Others by Daniel Kahneman, uh -huh. uh, who got the yeah. Nobel Prize in economics, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's the most well-known of the authors. It's basically a book about how human biases um, negatively influence human decisions. It, it kind of man being an, a scientist, like there's tons of um, studies, for example, one study which shows that if you give a judge in a criminal court the exact same folder with the exact same facts before lunch and after lunch, the sentencing will be vastly different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lunch and coffee breaks. Yes. Yeah, you exactly. definitely want to be, you want to plan your sentencing. If you're facing sentencing right now as a listener, and hopefully there's not many of you out there, you want to get your lawyer to get you to have your hearing right after coffee or right after lunch. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's it's very interesting in that respect, and um, be, because you just uh, are confronted with uh, typical human behaviors and how they can be problematic and what you can do about it. And interestingly, Kahneman, who is a psychologist, he kind of argues for using algorithms because he says yes, 
they can reproduce racism, for example, um, and they can have a racist bias, for example, but at least you see it and you can, um, you can deal with it by taking this out of the algorithm by, I don't know, rebalancing your training data, whatever, whereas there's at least the same amount of bias in society, but because there's also a lot of variance, um, you don't see it mm-hmm. as easily mm-hmm. as you do because the machine always you, um, has the same uh, judgment um, and doesn't vary so much. Yeah. So this is a very interesting book. Um, and the other thing that I'm currently reading is called Painful Intelligence by uh, Apo Hiverinen, who is a uh, machine learning researcher. He's the inventor of um, Fast ICA, which some people might know. It's uh, one. It's the ICA method in SKLearn, for example. Um, and he's written this book, which is super interesting because it discusses by a super uh, top-notch researcher. It discusses how machine learning is connected to mindfulness meditation. Um, Whoa. Yes, it's. Uh, I uh, I almost cried when I read the <laughs> when I re- read the introduction. It was super super nice. Um, there was some insights that I thought, oh wow, this is this is something that I've that I've thought about myself because I'm also a meditator. Mm-hmm. And uh, he goes into a lot of depth. Um, yeah, and uh, we. Um, we recently discussed this, and it's actually also in a podcast episode that you can look up. Oh, nice! Yeah, we had um, we had Ben Gertzel on the show earlier this year as well, and part of the conversation later in that episode was about the the overlap between uh, mindfulness and AI. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, fascinating space. It's it's very interesting. Like I don't know that you think about the past so much. This is exactly the same as in reinforcement learning. You're replaying experiences in order to learn from them better. Mm-hmm. It's exactly this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. As well as worrying about how will you behave in the future. This is also what AI agents do in order to plan better. So it's no wonder that we do these types of things. And it's also no wonder that we tend to have... Um, tend to be afraid of the future or think about what went wrong in the past because this helps you best to avoid mistakes. Of course, at the same time, like mindfulness is there to take the sharp edge out of this. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a super interesting connection. Great suggestions there. I love them both. I wish I had time to read all the books that our guests suggested. That would be kind of a dream life for me. Um, so yeah, Kahneman and others, Noise, and then painful intelligence. It sounds great. Um, Ingmar, this has been, as I think I just said a minute ago, a really fascinating episode. For people who want to follow you after this episode, what's the best way for them to do that and get your thoughts? Uh, LinkedIn is number one. Uh, you can also look at our podcast called uh, Machines and Molecules. Ah, uh, yes, Machines and Molecules. Ah, so when you're saying you have a podcast about it recently, it's a podcast episode of yours. Exactly. Yes, fantastic. Who is the guest? Do you remember? For this uh, very last episode is exactly Apu Hiverinen. Oh my goodness. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. That sounds like a great one. I'll be sure to include um, that link in the show notes. 
All right, Ingmar, thank you so much for taking the time and having this fascinating conversation with me. Really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Whoa, what a mind Ingmar has and what an educational, inspiring episode. In it, Ingmar filled us in on what kernel methods are, how kernel methods can be used to efficiently model tons of different real-world situations, including the biological catalysts and antibodies Exozyme helps pharmaceutical and chemical companies synthesize far more efficiently. He talked about how AI can play a key role in the coming years to extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, enable passive cooling to become mainstream, cure cancer, and completely overhaul the way pharmaceutical R&D is carried out. He talked about how shallow methods, machine learning approaches with one or fewer nonlinearities like kernel methods and XGBoost can outperform deep learning even on natural language processing tasks. And he talked about how if you want to be a pioneering AI entrepreneur yourself, you should just start and perhaps co-found the company with a domain expert if you're the one bringing the ML expertise. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Ingmar's social media profiles, as well as my own at superdatascience.com slash 739. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kiro on the Super Data Science team for producing another fascinating episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors. You can support this show by checking out our sponsors' links, which are in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com slash podcast. Otherwise, please share, please review, please subscribe, and all those good things. But most importantly, just keep on tuning in. I'm so grateful to have you listening, and I hope I can continue to make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.